Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. All right. I want to apologize to you for my appearance. Um, you have Cam Newton to blame for this. So... <laughs> Last week, um, as we were watching the Super Bowl, I made a very foolish wager with my nephew. Um, I was just, I got a little carried away in the moment. I got so confident that the Panthers would win. that I said, if they lose, I will wear tights at the pulpit. And Luke, if you lose, then you will wear tights all day to school. Now, I know for a fact that my nephew, Luke, would in a million years never have worn tights to school. But I'm trying to teach my children that when you give your word, even foolishly and stupidly, your word has to mean something. And at the same time, I also um, feel this tension that I'm giving the word of God. I don't want to make light of it. And I don't want you distracted by these beautiful legs the whole time I'm trying to preach. So I feel like I have honored the spirit of that bad wager. I'm going to put pants on now. You guys tell Luke. All right. Thank you. How's that? All right. Ironically, the subject of this morning's message is spiritual authority which I've just undermined tremendously by what I've just done. Um, I have to actually get the clicker. I left it down here. So if you're joining us, um, kind of new to our church, we've been working our way through a sermon series called Life on Life Ministry. It's a study of the first letter of Timothy. The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to one of his protégés named Timothy, and we're studying the first of those letters. And what we're pointing out is the kingdom of God has always spread as one person made a life-on-life investment in another person. That's just the way it's always worked. And so we're looking through this, the lens of life-on-life ministry at this first letter. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16 what you find is an example where Paul is exercising his spiritual authority in the life of Timothy so that Timothy would then in turn exercise his spiritual authority in the lives of other people. I want to read the passage for you, and uh, you'll notice this week the slides are pretty plain. I was a little under the weather, so I just did the basic level work on those. But most of the, the slides are really just the word of God. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Here's what it says. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. 
Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, I found that it's really challenging to talk about spiritual authority in the church in America. I think it's because we live in a country that was founded on the overthrow of unwanted authority. Isn't that right? In fact, the birth of our nation was a war of revolution. It was saying to England, you are not the boss of us. And many people died in order to establish a country where we refused to let anyone else rule us. And that spirit, typified in that flag that says, don't tread on me, still remains at the core of the spirit of what it means to be American. At the heart of being American is a fierce sense of independence and self-determination where we're very, very skeptical and wary of any external authority. In fact, we Americans probably lead the world in not being really big fans of our own government, right? Like, and after watching that Republican debate, it's no wonder. What a, what a circus that was. That was crazy to me. And when you see something like that, you realize people are afraid that if we yield to and, and submit ourselves to the authority of others, that we're going to be in danger. Now, I don't think we're afraid of authority for no reason. If you study the history books, if you look at the news stories today, they are filled with stories of the abuse of power. At a local level, as well as a national level, there have been countless people who have suffered because somebody had more power than they deserved, and they used it to destroy other people. And so we're right to be wary of authority, but I want to just remind you that not all authority is dangerous and not all authority is to be feared. I'll grant you that when people abuse authority, it is a frightening thing. But there are many cases where people have used their authority to be a great blessing to others. And I think the, the way that Paul is talking about spiritual authority is that we don't have to be afraid of the kind of authority described in the New Testament because it's an authority that works for us and not against us. It's an authority that is meant to strengthen what we already want within ourselves and not to oppress us or suppress us in any way. And here's the truth. If we engage in ministry, even the life-on-life ministry that is devoid of any sense of spiritual authority, what you get at the end is a very toothless and frustrating kind of ministry where everything is spoken as an option or a suggestion where there is no sense of a bite, of real weight to the things we're talking about in the kingdom. And as a result, quite often, when there is no component of spiritual authority in life-on-life ministry, what happens is both the person giving the influence and the person receiving it grow very frustrated because it doesn't produce the kind of transformation and growth that we really want. And so I want to describe for you what the Bible means when it speaks about legitimate spiritual authority. And and I have traveled the world and I have listened to some really bad stories of spiritual leaders who have abused their authority. Things that are so shocking, I can't really share them from this pulpit because we have younger people in the room. But I have heard some things that just took my breath away. And I'm horrified that people who serve God 
could abuse their authority this way. And so I want to just get it right out there now. I have no appreciation for anybody who misuses their authority. But I also think that it's just as bad to be given spiritual authority and refuse to use it. To stand by and watch people become a shadow of who they were called to be because we don't want to speak up with the authority which God legitimately grants to us in spiritual life. So let's explore what spiritual authority really should be like according to Scripture. Okay? And I want to first talk about the source of spiritual authority. Where does authority come from? And the first source of spiritual authority is its divine authority. I don't know if you guys remember the show Seinfeld. Anybody watch Seinfeld? Okay, so I really like that show. Gina and I used to watch it a lot when we were, when we were newlyweds. And in season eight, you might remember an episode called the Bizarro episode. And in that episode, Kramer, who's kind of crazy, he walks into a company. He doesn't even work there, but he just ends up helping out an employee in the hallway. And they're like, oh, you're so helpful. And he starts liking it, and he decides to just keep showing up there day after day. He's not hired. He doesn't have a job there, but he just works there. And the crazy thing is because he acts like he belongs there, everybody else just assumes he belongs there. And they give him an office, and they give him a title. And then at the end of the episode, he gets fired from a job he doesn't even have. But I don't even really work here, is what he says. Now, that's a funny episode, but that wouldn't fly in the church. And the point is, with spiritual leadership, you can't proclaim yourself a leader. You can't just one day go, hey, everyone, folks, listen, I'm one of your leaders from now on. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if you'd submit to me, if you'd respect what I say. And when I give you something to do, please do it as the Lord's authority is behind it. That doesn't fly. We can't just decide by showing up and defining ourselves a certain way that that's the role we have. It's important to remember that spiritual authority is given. It's appointed. And largely, God uses the church to transfer spiritual authority. But even when he does that, ultimately all the authority belongs to him. You know, when you look at a command structure like you see in the the police or in the military, the command structure begins at a very local level. Everybody in that organization has somebody who commands them, but every commander has somebody who commands him as well until you get all the way to the top and the commander-in-chief. In other words, all authority in every structure is granted by some other authority. And if you forget that, you will start to be a little local despot. You will think that somehow you are the king of your own little domain. And when a leader begins to think that their power is their power, that's when all the trouble begins. I've seen it in pastoral ministry. I've seen it in small group leadership. I've seen people get carried away with the influence that they are given over others. Not just the influence they're given in title, but when they realize they speak and people follow, it's heady stuff. It's intoxicating to realize you actually have the power to influence other people's lives. And so it's important for us to remember that the authority we wield in spiritual life is always ultimately God's authority. It's never our own. You know, the most common reason I've seen for people not wanting to take on a role of leadership in the church is that they feel insecure and inadequate. It's one thing to go to the church, but when you invite people, hey, I would love for you to lead this thing or to invest in that person, they often say, oh, man, I, 
don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if my life is in good enough shape for that. And I appreciate a healthy dose of humility. But I think we should pay attention to the fact that if we were just self-proclaiming as leaders, we'd be right to be a little insecure. But the truth is, when someone else invites us, what they're saying is we see something in you that you need to see in yourself. That you may feel inadequate, you may feel insecure, but trust the word and the will of God expressed through the church that you're ready for this. That by the affirmation of other people, what they're saying to you is you're more ready for this than you realize. And ultimately, it's not you that is leading, but you are leading in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ. So Paul reminds Timothy, hey, don't forget that you didn't just become a leader by yourself. There was a day when all the elders of the church laid hands on you, and they appointed you, and they anointed you. You like that? That's a little rhyme there. You get appointed and anointed. That's how you become a leader. Someone invites you and someone installs you. And that's how you become someone of spiritual authority in the church. And what he's saying is, Timothy, don't forget, you're not just the youngest guy in the room. You're the person that the church and all its leaders appointed to play this role in this season. It's important that you accept that. And so he says, for that reason, don't let people look down on you just because you're young. That Greek word translated young is actually a word that ranges from around the age of 16 or 18 all the way through the 30s. And so it's, it's very likely Timothy wasn't a teenager. He was probably in his 20s or 30s at the time of this writing. And yet he was in a senior position in the church, and it created a lot of insecurity for him. So Paul is just reminding him, the authority you wield is not just yours. It's ultimately Jesus Christ's that you're wielding. In fact, if you study the word command in the New Testament, what you discover is that almost every occurrence of the word command is about the commands of Jesus, not the commands of men. For some reason, I had it in my head that there were lots of occasions where guys like Paul said, I command you in the Lord. But when I did an actual study of it, there are very few examples where men in the Bible command the church to do anything. 95% of the occurrences of the word command have to do with people saying to other people, Jesus commanded this. God commands us, and I remind you of his authority. That's at the extent to which I I will use my authority, is that I'm reminding you who has the ultimate authority in our lives. The best use of spiritual authority is when we remind people of the authority Jesus has over all of us. Don't ever do something for a spiritual leader just because they asked you. Do it because they remind you that Jesus asks it of you. Because if you follow men, your life can be very easily led astray. But if you follow Jesus, your life will stay on track. So that's one very important source of spiritual authorities, remembering that it doesn't just come from ourselves, it's given to us through the church, and ultimately it's the authority of Jesus. There's also another kind of authority, a source of our authority, and that's moral authority. What we mean by moral authority is nobody wants to sit in a smoking cessation class led by someone who's a chain smoker. Isn't that true? Nobody wants to go to a financial planning seminar with somebody who's flat broke. And nobody wants their doctor to be the most unhealthy person they've ever met. In other words, moral authority is saying this. 
if you want to proclaim a message with authority to people, you have to be very sure that it's a message you embrace yourself. Because people can spot a fake from a mile away, and one of the most discouraging things is when a message is very attractive, but the people who speak it ruin that message for you. When the hypocrisy and the failures of people who bear the message in some way taint the beauty of the message itself. And so there's this idea that it's very frustrating to sit under the authority of someone who has official authority over us, but has not worked hard to win our genuine and deep respect and trust. And so Paul reminds Timothy, look, one of the big parts of your ministry is to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I'm not going to belabor that, but I think you can see right away there's two basic categories of where moral authority comes from. It's the visible outer life. It's the the speech, the words we say, and our conduct, the things we do. That represents our outer life. And what he says is, as far as people can observe you from a distance, make sure that your life reveals, it reflects the principles of the gospel, just like you're teaching to others. But at the same time, he says, even the inner life, which nobody can see right away, it eventually comes out. But even the inner life, things like love and faith and purity, you have to guard those things too, because if you're sloppy with those things, it can take a very great opportunity and a very great message and nullify them through that failure. It's not so much that by living these morally perfect lives, we gain the right to tell other people what to do. I don't want you to think of it that way. It's more like this. People long for something true, something real. A lot of people get to a point in their lives, around midlife, where they're just sick of all the BS. They're sick of all the agendas everybody has, all the stories people tell, all the lies floating out there. And what they want to know is, is there anything real? Some of us have been coming to church for more than 20 years, and we're like, is this stuff all baloney? Is there anything of substance here? Is this really true? Is the gospel really the final truth of the universe? When I die, am I really going to end up facing God, or am I just going to cease to exist? And these questions are running through everyone's mind. We're dying to know, is there anything real or substantive to all of these claims? And as we're yearning to know if it's real, what we're looking at are the people bearing the message, and if they can't even embrace the message in their own lives, it's so discouraging because you feel like everybody lies, nothing is true, and yet in my heart I long for something true. I yearn for something real, and I'm waiting to see it. That's why the best spiritual leaders are not the people who communicate the most eloquently or who can lead the the most sophisticated, large organizations. The best leaders are ultimately the people who have bought the message they're selling, who are the the truest believers in the room. I mean, like, like, if I don't believe it enough to radically change my own life, then can you imagine the audacity to stand in front of other people And tell them to change their lives. There's something really broken. And that's why when a pastor falls, it's so devastating to us. Because that man stood in front of hundreds or thousands 
and proclaimed a message that clearly in his own life he was violating day after day after day. And the scary part is many of those days, right after he violated his conscience, he stood on a pulpit and talked to us. I'll never forget reading a book called Samson and the Pirate Monks by Nate Larkin. He was a pastor who left the ministry after a devastating moral failure. And he said, the worst part of it was even while I was sinning so much, the church kept growing. He remembers visiting a prostitute on the way to their candlelight Christmas Eve service. I mean, he literally stopped to visit her on the way to church that evening. And people walked up to him after and said, that was the best service we've had in a long time. That's scary. But over time, you cannot keep that hidden forever. And what was hard for him was he was giving this beautiful message, but he realized how little he believed it in his own heart. So I want to remind you that the authority we really bring in Christ is not just given externally through Christ. It is also validated as we live out the message we proclaim. This is not just true for pastors and church leaders. If you're a parent, if you're an older sibling, if you have friends who are younger than you, anybody over whom you have legitimate influence, these words are true for you as well. The most discouraging thing is when parents yell at their kids for the very things that they don't do. My kids, isn't it discouraging when mom does that? Dad never, I do that too, I'm kidding. It's, it's discouraging when a parent yells at a kid for something they didn't do properly either. And so I want you to remember that this moral authority is not our, our price of admission to boss people around. It's a way of saying this is true. What I say to you is not a, an agenda. It's not a, a belief system. It is the truth, and I believe it deeply. I'm barely hanging on, but I'm hanging on only because I truly believe this good news. I truly believe that when this devastating season is over, there is light at the end of the tunnel. I trust this Jesus, this Savior. I believe him. That's what we're giving away through moral authority, is the conviction, the certainty that this isn't a lie. And finally, there's relational authority. When we try to do life on life, we want to get involved investing in someone's life. This is also a very important component. It's interesting that when you look at 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul specifically mentions Timothy's mother and grandmother. He says, oh man, you really got a sincere faith handed down to you from your mother and grandmother. And the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, what about dad? Where's dad? Well, we know from Acts 16.3 that Timothy's dad was a Greek, a Gentile, a non-believer. We don't know why he wasn't around in Timothy's life. It could be a number of reasons. They could have been divorced, he could have been dead, or it just could be that he was a non-factor in Timothy's spiritual development. Regardless of the reason, one thing is clear. Timothy inherited his sincere faith from the maternal line, but like so many young men, he did not learn his faith from his father. And I want to just look at all the dads in this room. I know not every man here is a dad, but I want to look at you dads and just remind you of something important. One of the greatest privileges you have in this world, in this short earthly life, is to give away your faith in Jesus Christ to your children. You can leave behind a vast fortune, a massive business, a palatial home. You can give them good genes so that they're tall and beautiful and strong. 
But if you don't give away your faith, you have robbed your children of the greatest gift. The greatest privilege of a father is to give away his sincere faith to his children. And when a father doesn't do it, the costs are staggering for the family. Staggering. So costly, it can translate to generations of lostness. By God's grace, what Paul did in Timothy's life is he stepped into that vacuum. And while Timothy could not learn his faith from his biological father, Paul stepped into his life as a spiritual father. And later in his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul writes this testimony. I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare. In other words, I want so badly to go to you, but I can't because I'm in prison. So I'm going to send Timothy because sending Timothy is like sending myself. His heart is just like mine. And if he goes, you will feel as loved as if I were there. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because, listen to this, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. In other words, Timothy supported Paul as though Paul were his own father. And he wouldn't do that unless Paul played the role of a loving father in his own life. People don't just follow the smartest guy in the room, the strongest guy in the room, the richest guy in the room. They ultimately follow people they trust and people who have loved them. There is something powerful when a leader genuinely loves the people he leads. When a leader has a heart that is heavy laden with love and burden for the people she leads, there is something powerful that happens in that leadership. Because people open their hearts They don't just walk in lockstep. Their hearts are open and they begin to experience growth and change. And that's why we go to church. That's what we long for is to experience a community like that. And one of the ways we derive that authority in another person's life is through the long and costly pathway of really loving them. So that's where authority comes from in the church. It's divine authority that comes from God's calling. It's moral authority that proves in our own lives that the message we proclaim is real, that it's not a lie. And finally, relational authority. It's the authority that comes from having loved people from the depths of your heart so that they know it. Let me finish with one final point, the exercise of spiritual authority. How are we supposed to use the authority God grants us as spiritual leaders? One purpose is to strengthen calling. The heart of all spiritual leadership, there should be a radical unselfishness. In other words, the purpose of God giving us spiritual authority is not so we can get people to do our bidding It's so that we could be used in their life to make them grow. We should never use or manipulate people for our own purposes. And that happens a lot in church. I mean, if you're new and you have a talent like music, if you're like a world-class saxophonist or guitarist and you visit a new church, the minute they find out, watch their eyes light up. We don't care what's going on in your life. If you can play guitar... Get on in here. Stay at our church. And the whole point is you are part of the human resources 
seen for us. You are an asset in our congregation. And I think we should rightly mistrust the church who only looks at us for what we can give back. At the end of the day, the best exercise of spiritual leadership is not in the service of some great organizational cause, but so that people themselves would draw deeper into a life with Christ. We're not here to build a church. We're here to build a church that builds up people who are disciples of Jesus Christ. There is no point in building a large, magnificent structure if the result is not people drawing into a deeper life with Christ. And if we ever forget that's the main agenda, we will build something amazing that has no power and no value in this world other than to impress the living daylights out of the competition. That's all we'll manage is look how big their building is, look how huge everything is. That's not why we're in business as a church. We exercise our spiritual authority with radical unselfishness to promote the people we're raising up, not to promote our causes. And so Paul is here using his authority to remind Timothy, I'm here to call you out and say this is what God called you to. Throughout this entire passage, he's reminding Timothy, hey, Timothy, remember, you're supposed to command and teach people. You're supposed to set an example for the believers. You're supposed to devote yourself to the ministry of the word. Don't neglect your gift. Be diligent. Give yourself wholly to this ministry. And watch your life and doctrine closely. In other words, what he's saying is, Timothy, my greatest concern is not that you will be useful to the church, but that in your role in the church, you would fulfill God's calling on your life. He has a plan for you. I'm a small part of it, but my aim is to propel God's plan in your life, not to use you for my plans. You know, there are some coaches that use their players to build their own careers. But better coaches use their careers to build the careers of their players. You know, there's a big difference between those two kinds of coaches. Which kind of coach would you rather play for? Somebody who's using you to make sure he has a job next season? Or someone who will risk it all to make sure you go on to keep playing ball? As spiritual leaders, that's the spirit we should have. Is I am in your life so that you will draw deeper with Christ, not so that you will become more useful to the rest of us. Finally, making good time. We use our spiritual authority to strengthen not just people's calling or a sense of what God is calling them to, but to strengthen their commitment personally to Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to this ministry so that everyone may see your progress. And here's the result. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere, meaning go the distance. Stay in it for the long haul. And if you do all these things, then you will save both yourself and your hearers. A person, a spiritual leader who has a high regard for Christ's authority in his own life will not read the commands of Christ as suggestions. And I think if we're honest about it, that's the way we read our Bible most of the time. We sit down and we open our Bible and says, you know, um, do this. When somebody slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the left cheek. 
And we read it as sort of like, all right, I'm going to try really hard to think about that. I'm, it's a great suggestion. I'm going to set a goal. I'm going to try. But we rarely read it as, that's it then. That's the only viable path for us. There is no second road. When, when Christ says with his authority, when someone offends you, you forgive them, that's the only path. When he says, don't fall in love with money, there's no loophole. That's just flat out, don't fall in love with money. When he says, don't hate another person because it's like committing murder against them in your heart, I think the reason that our Christian faith is sometimes so weak is that we don't read his word with any sense of authority. It's all about, okay, I hear you, but I don't know. I'll see how it goes this week. I'll see if you show up in my life, if you're good to me this week. I'll see if the people around me treat me decently. I'll see, I'll see if I'm in the mood. And we don't acknowledge that God himself, if he is God at all, has authority over us. That his commands spoken are non-negotiable. And a spiritual leader who has a high regard for the authority of Jesus will live that way in his own life and will not give the people who follow him any hint, any suggestion that these things are optional to us. Hey, listen, I know that you guys aren't married yet, but listen, it'd be great if you could try hard to stop having sex before marriage. I've sort of said the truth. But I've said it in the most toothless possible way. And if I think that's grace and that's loving, I'm wrong. Those people are in violation of the commands of Jesus, their Savior. There is an accounting to be made one day for that. And if I have a high regard for the authority of Jesus, that high regard for his authority will translate to the people who follow. I will never speak of God's commands as good suggestions. I will speak of them as commands. Now, I'm not talking about a strong-handed, ungracious, unloving way of saying these things, but here's what I'm saying. One of the great gifts a spiritual leader gives people is this unshakable conviction that God's word is just true, that there is really no legitimate other way for us to live as his followers. So when we're in a bind, and I love this person in my church, and I see the conundrum they're in, right? Like, and either way they go, they're going to lose something. If they do the right thing, it's going to cost them big. If they do the wrong thing, their conscience is going to be scarred. So what do I do? And as a human being, I appreciate their situation. If I were in your shoes, I know the temptation to cut corners, to take the easy way out. But as your spiritual leader, I cannot give you the illusion that there is a legitimate pathway apart from God's commands. If you're going to lose your job by not lying, by not cheating, I still have to give you the counsel, you must not lie. You must not cheat. I know what it's going to cost you. But I cannot talk about the gospel as though these are decisions for us to make as we go on our own. That somehow it's okay for us to cheat here or there, to cut corners here or there. And if I give that impression to the people who follow me, that's what they're going to think of Jesus, is this is all a game. It's all a journey where I grow at my own pace, on my own terms, and he's just someone who's going to have to sit there and wait till I'm ready. His authority as Savior has no binding hold over me. How can that be Christianity? 
How can we call that the followership of Jesus Christ? So when he says, if you do all these things, you will save both yourself and your hearers, I believe this is what Paul is saying. That the churches since the days of Christ have been filled with people who made a verbal confession of Jesus, but never really gave their hearts over to him. There is something the Bible speaks of called regeneration. A quickening of the spirit, the inner life. It's like this. You know the saying, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So before we meet Jesus, there is a deadness to our souls. Inside is just deadness. And when, you, when a person confesses Christ truly and they are saved, Jesus himself does something inside the person to bring up a life. There's an irrepressible life. It translates into this growing hunger for the things of Christ. A growing hunger to be used by him, to learn more of him, to spend more time with him. It's very similar to the feeling of falling in love. Love is a mysterious thing. Before I met Jeannie as my wife and my girlfriend, she was just some girl in my small group. I looked at her for months as just whatever. Yeah, she's kind of cute, but that's about it. Lots of cute people in the world. But love is a mysterious thing. Then one day, I looked at her and went, oh, jeez. What happened? Yesterday, she was just another girl. Today, she's, that's it. I'm done. Game over. It's like that. You can't manufacture it or mimic it. It's either there or it's not. That's the heartbreak for a lot of married people is, man, I look at you. You're faithful to me. You're still sitting there. But what's the last time I felt like, There was this life inside of you towards me. That it wasn't such a chore to spend time with me. I don't mean to cramp your style on Valentine's Day. But isn't that a heartbreaking thing? When you feel like you lost that love and feeling? And I think what Paul is saying is in the church are many people who one day made some verbal claim that they trust Jesus And we don't know what happened that day, but we can be certain of this. There's no visible sign at all that anything dead inside them came to life. They remain completely unable to hunger for God, to care about being used by him. They're not interested in his purpose for their life. Reading the Bible is like anesthetic. It's like horse tranquilizer. I just opened the Bible. There's no life. Praying is just drudgery. And what he's saying is, maybe those people are that way because we gave a presentation of the gospel that was so toothless, that had so little power and substance, and they thought, okay, all I have to do is go, oh, Lord, oh, yeah, I confess that. Please come into my heart. Don't let me go to hell. All right. That was it. Transaction finished. I'm one of his. And what Paul is suggesting is that's not how simple it is, but that when a person really is saved, there is a power a life that churns inside of them. And they get excited not just for money, not just for business, not just for sex, for power, but when they are with the things of God, something wells up in them. They get excited. I'm not saying any of that to make anyone in this room feel guilty. I'm saying it to make you feel awake. If you say you're a Christian and you have never felt these things for the things of God, Think again about what you have trusted. And the exercise of spiritual leadership is always in this, for this purpose to paint a picture 
of the kingdom where we take the authority and the power and the word of God very seriously. Where he doesn't just make suggestions, but he gives us rules for life to awaken in us the fullness of life. That's the best spiritual leadership. And I want to encourage you, if you invest in life-on-life ministry with another person, let that be the spirit in which you exercise that influence God has granted you in that person's life. Not just to criticize them or to sharpen their skills, but to draw their hearts deeper into a commitment to Jesus Christ. That's why God gave us that authority in the first place. I want to ask you to bow with me. And as we respond in prayer, uh, in praise team, you can come on up here. Um, I, want, I want to do a couple things today before we finish. One is I want you to think about a spiritual leader who has meant a great deal to you in your life. Somebody who really cared about your soul, who remained faithful to you, even when you weren't being very faithful yourself. The kind of person that you would say, a big part of why I am where I am today spiritually is because that person invested in me. I want you to think about that person if there is such a person in your life. And I want to just spend a moment thanking God for that person. Wherever they may be in their life today, wherever they are in the world, would you pray that God would meet them and reward them for their faithfulness in your life and just shower them with blessings because they had such an important part for you? And if you've never had such a person, you have no idea how life-giving it is to have someone pour into you spiritually. Would you pray that God would give you someone like that in your life? So why don't we just uh, pray like that for now, just a couple minutes. Let's just pray Thanksgiving for spiritual leaders in our lives. If you don't have any such person, pray God will give you such a person. So let's pray for that. As I continue to pray, um, I want to give a special invitation and, and a word of challenge to a number of you out there who are really ready now to accept the mantle of spiritual leadership in your family, in your small group, in your church. There are people waiting for you to point them to Christ, to be a leader in their life, to pour into them. Maybe it's your own children waiting to learn something from you that points them to Jesus. Maybe it's a younger sibling, a friend, someone in your small group. But if God has called you to someone like that, pray for the faith and courage to accept that role, to not run from it. So let's just give another minute or two to just give that challenge of invitation and respond to it, and then I'll close for us in prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.